Trinity Central. We exist to make God central to our lives and our world. You are listening to a recording of one of our Sunday messages. For more information, please go to trinitycentral.org. We're doing a series in the book of Acts, and uh, you can think of Acts in three different ways. You could think of Acts as the story of how Jesus, uh, the, the ki- uh, how King Jesus spreads his love all the way throughout the world, from Jerusalem, through Judea, through Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Or you could think of Acts as the story of how the Holy Spirit empowered ordinary people to bring this life-changing message of King Jesus uh, to c- their cities, and city after city, and ultimately nation after nation, or you could also think of Acts as the story of ordinary people like you and me that God uses, King Jesus uses, and catches up in his kingdom adventure. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about the kingdom adventure that God has caught us up in. Now, last week, uh, we were talking about Paul and his time in Athens, Um, This week we begin with Paul arriving in the city of Corinth, and uh, Paul arrives in Corinth probably somewhat discouraged. Uh, He's gone through some pretty fierce opposition. He's been stoned, he's been beaten, he's been imprisoned, he's been flogged. Uh, Wherever he has seen uh, real fruitfulness, there has also been incredible opposition. And uh, he writes to the Corinthian church Uh, And in his introduction to them in in chapter 2 of of his letter to the Corinthians, the first letter, he says, I didn't come to you with wise and persuasive words. In fact, he says, "I, I came to you with weakness and fear and trembling. So it sounds like Paul was pretty discouraged. Paul was struggling a little bit when he came to Corinth. Later on in the chapter, uh, God actually encourages him that God will be his security, But what happens is that when Paul arrives in Corinth from Athens, things begin to happen. There is some breakthrough. There is some uh, wonderful encouragement. And significantly, within the encouragement that the Apostle Paul receives are some new friendships. And uh, what I want to do this morning is I want to talk about a couple called Aquila and Priscilla. And I want to introduce them to us. And I want to uh, speak to us really of something of a model that God wants for our lives in terms of what it means to understand His catching us up in the big purposes that He has for His world. So Aquila and Priscilla, a close friendship with Paul that becomes a spiritual partnership and that ultimately develops into this Uh, amazing uh, mission that God has them caught up in together. Let me pray for us, and then we'll get stuck in. Father, we thank you so much that you want to catch us up in kingdom adventure. God, we thank you that you didn't just save us to sit in in, in meetings and uh, to listen to messages, but you saved us to make a difference. 
You saved us to catch us up in your mighty uh, gospel, your kingdom advance across the nations. Thank you, God, that you chose us. And you said, I'll have you and I'll bring you into my purposes. And so this morning, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would rest on us. I pray that you'd envision us. I pray that you'd give us a big vision of Jesus. I pray that you'd give us a big vision of the mission that we're caught up in. And I pray that you'd give us a big vision of how it is that you want to catch us up and how we can respond by faith into that that you are doing in us. In your wonderful name, I pray it. Amen. Amen. Ash used that, uh, that phrase, uh, trusting God when things feel like they're out of control. And uh, as we come to the passage, we'll see that uh, Priscilla and Aquila were a couple in that situation. Life was probably felt a little bit out of control. What had happened was that there had been a rise of anti-Semitism in uh, Rome uh, and across Italy, in fact. And uh, Aquila and Priscilla were Jewish. And there had come a point at the height of this uh, anti-Semitism that the uh, Roman Emperor Claudius had said, I want all Jews out of Rome. Out you go. And so he commanded, and immediately the Jews were displaced. And so though they were probably quite a wealthy couple, probably uh, a very accomplished couple, well-respected in their trade, they suddenly find themselves as refugees. They suddenly find themselves in a situation which they could not have controlled, uh, in a situation where they're having to make the best of a set of cards that have been dealt to, him, to them that they had not expected. And so they moved to Corinth. Now, there's probably a reason why they moved to Corinth. Corinth was the site of the Isthmian Games. Now, the, uh, we, we're probably all familiar with the Olympic Games. Uh, the Isthmian Games happened every second year, alternating with the, uh, uh, with the Olympic Games, and they were very much a part of Jewish culture, uh, sorry, Greek culture, Greek sport. Uh, and so Corinth was the site of the Isthmian Games. And so every second year, they would set up this massive tent city and they would hold the games. And so Aquila and Priscilla, being tent makers, headed to Corinth and set up shop in Corinth. And just to start off by saying, world events often happen to us. We're not in control of those events. We, we saw it this week with the passing of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, an incredible leader and, and a transition of power. Uh, in, in many senses, a wonderful sense of a life well-lived. Uh, but often we see, and we've, our news is full of it, even in terms of the war in um, uh, the Ukraine right now, lives displaced, people fleeing for their lives. And it's so important for us to understand that God is sovereign even in those situations over our lives, and that if we will trust Him, even those situations, He will turn for our goods, and He will bring good out of those situations. And so it is for Priscilla and Aquila. I imagine leaving Rome was heart-wrenching, probably traumatic, uh, having to flee all of a sudden, probably leaving, oh, thanks, love, leaving so, their, their possessions, their home, uh, and heading out to Corinth, but there, God connects them with his servant, Paul. And so we pick up the story in Acts 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, 
recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he was also a tent maker, he stayed with them and he worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ, that the Christ was Jesus. What I'm going to do this morning is I'm just going to gradually walk through uh, the different elements that, Paul, uh, that Luke tells us about this couple and just draw out some things for us to be aware of in terms of God's way of working in our lives from the story as it unfolds. Now, the author of, of Luke, uh, the author of Acts is a man called Luke, Dr. Luke, and uh, Luke is the one who introduces Priscilla and Aquila to us. Now, uh, you'll find that her actual name is Prisca. Uh, it's Aquila and Prisca. And, uh, but Priscilla is a sort of a, dominu- dominu- a diminutive form that speaks of affection. In, in the Southern Hemisphere, where I grew up, we often add I-E to the end of names uh, as an affectionate uh, way of speaking about somebody. So you might have heard me refer to my wife, Sarah, as Sazy. Well, that's kind of what's happening here. When Dr. Luke talks about Priscilla, he is talking about, uh, it, it, it speaks with a particular sense of affection. Uh, it's, uh, this, this, this is not a, a lady that he knows from a distance. This is somebody that he feels very connected to. But Dr. Luke doesn't tell us whether they had come to faith in Jesus Christ before they left Rome or on arriving in Corinth. However, it's quite possible that it was as they joined with Paul and began to work with him, they worked together for about 18 months, it was quite possible that in that process of time, they came to faith in Jesus. Every week, they would have gone to the synagogue with Paul. They would have heard him reasoning with the Jews. Uh, they probably went home uh, and, and around the tent making day after day. Uh, tell us what you meant by that. Why were you saying that? What was going on with that? And Paul is unpacking scripture to them. Even if they'd come to faith before this, Certainly, this would have been a very key time of discipleship in their lives that activated them into faith for the things that God had for them in the future. And so for a period of time, Paul works uh, under the care in the business of Aquila and Priscilla, and then uh, Silas and Timothy arrive, uh, and they, at that point, they bring two things with them. The first thing they bring is news that the, Thess- the, the Thessalonican church, uh, which they had planted just very recently and which had endured incredible persecution, that it was going well and beginning to thrive. News that must have gladdened Paul's heart no end. But the second thing they did was they brought a gift of finance from the church in Philippi that had also been planted on the same journey. And that gift of finance meant that Paul could stop making tents and devote his full time to preaching the gospel and making disciples. But up until the moment of their arrival, really it was Priscilla and Aquila's business that had kept Paul in the business of disciple making. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about a, a, a gentleman 
who is connected with our, or part of our churches in the east of uh, the U.S., who built a business and um, began to realize I am beginning to get business in places that I know as a family of churches we're wanting to break into, we're wanting to plant churches into, we're wanting to see people reached in these places, but they're closed nations. You can't get into them as a church planter. You can't get into them as a so-called missionary. And so he sat down with uh, the leaders of the church that he was part of, and he said, you know what, uh, I have, I'm, I'm not mentioning the business because they're uh, operating in, in closed places, um, but they partnered with the church to send people to plant churches and to open sales offices in these places so they'd uh, bring them to their, uh, to their factory, to their uh, business in, in the U.S. They'd train them up, and then they'd send them out to establish a sales office for a number of uh, days a week, and then they'd plant a church alongside that. Wonderful mix of seeing kingdom vision, seeing how are we on advance together, my business can facilitate this. I can see how we can work together in the kingdom through my business. My business can facilitate this amazing faith. Now we pick up the story in verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer. So Paul was in Corinth for quite a, a period of time. And then he took leave of the brothers and he set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Cenchrea he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a, while, for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you, if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So Paul leaves Corinth, and he takes Priscilla and Aquila with him. A new faith adventure starts for this couple. Suddenly, they're on the move again. But this time, it's not because they're being forced to go. It's because something has ignited in their hearts, and they're getting caught up in something of God's purposes beyond their own lives. By faith, they respond to Paul's invitation to go with him. And they move to Ephesus, and they are part of starting a new work in the city of Ephesus. It reminds me of our own experience here. Uh, as we moved, as Sarah and I and our kids moved from London to Vancouver, uh, I remember asking uh, Sam and Kath Wade, who did not have kids at the time, and Ben and Rebecca Aston also didn't have any kids at the time, uh, young, available couples, but both Couples very immersed in, in the work that they were doing and saying, how about coming with us to plant a new church in the city of Vancouver? And uh, I remember a conversation that you guys had, uh, I, I vaguely kind of, so you might have to correct my, my detail on it, but um, one of your relatives saying, you're going to build a church, like you're becoming contract workers, you're construction workers, you're going to build brick by brick. Uh, are you going to live like in a commune together? Is this like a monastery kind of deal that you're doing? Uh, and uh, of course, these guys are saying, no, no, we are going, we're, we're, we're leaving our jobs, our, our career paths. 
We're leaving our parents and our families. We're leaving our home. We're leaving our nation. We're leaving our culture. And we're going to support. We're going to be part of. We're going to get jobs. We're going to immerse ourselves in a new culture. We're going to give ourselves to the work of God in that place. And uh, as that happened, then we met James and Liesel in St. John in New Brunswick and uh, said to them, would you guys come with us? Initially, they said, no way. Uh, and then uh, soon after that, they came and, and James got a job in a law firm here. And then after a little while, we said, James, would you come on staff with us to help us with the work that's going on? I remember a young Mark Peskett uh, who's somewhere running sound, oh, there he is over there, uh, courageously coming up to me at the end of a, a Sunday morning meeting, having just heard that we were moving to Vancouver, and saying, I feel like God might be asking me to go with you to Vancouver. And so, as a single guy, he moved on his own, courageously leaving everything he knew to come and be part of God's mission here. Amazing. And then, there's actually just couple after couple stories uh, of people saying, I want to be part, I want to be part. Uh, even just recently, Dan and Val joining us uh, from Surrey saying, hey, we feel like God wants to do something here. We're coming to be part of what God's doing. Da uh, Daniel and Sarah, who moved with us from Edinburgh uh, uh, in Scotland and are now planting the church in Burnaby, we're beginning to see something happening that's so wonderful uh, Dave and Rabina, I could just keep going on. John and Kate, just, just people who came, Emma, people who came to be part of something. I want to encourage you, go and chat with them. Ask them their stories. Ask about how God led them. Ask about why they stepped into the faith adventure. There are some amazing stories right here in this room of how people were obedient to God. So for Priscilla and Aquila, home is now in Ephesus. And alongside their tent-making business, what we find is that they're now leaders in a burgeoning church in Ephesus. Now we pick up the story again in verse 24, and we read, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. Uh, just to say, Alexandria was uh, one of the big world-class cities of the time, had the biggest library uh, of all cities in the world, of the, of the old world in that sense. It was, a, it was a, a thought powerhouse. Many of the great philosophers came out of Alexandria. And uh, this is where Apollos grew up. It was a confluence of Greek and uh, Jewish thinking. And... Uh, it says, he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing that by the Scriptures the Christ was Jesus. So Apollos is a pretty impressive guy. He's an incredible intellect. 
He has a, a, an ability to hold audiences. He's fervent in speech. He's kind of like a, a, a guy who gets up and burns. People get caught up with him. There's a, a wonderful story of a, a Scottish uh, preacher. Uh, and uh, the story goes of a man who went to hear him preach. But, but rather than sitting in the crowd and watching the preacher preach, he sat on uh, the side of the stage and he watched the crowd because he was so fascinated that when when the preacher uh, frowned, the whole crowd would frown. And, and when, he, uh, when he smiled, the whole, the whole crowd would smile. There was this incredible sense of them being with him 100%. Apollos is this kind of guy. He's fervent in speech. He gets up and he burns and people go with him. People are like, wow, this guy really knows what he's talking about. He's a, he's a bit of a, an intellectual giant. And he comes along. And he begins to speak in the synagogue, and Priscilla and Aquila uh, think, wow, this guy's theological foundation is incomplete. He's missing a whole massive element of what God has for him. And so they, they call him aside. Maybe they probably say, come, come and have a meal with us. Come and sit at our table. And they begin to speak to him. Now, Apollos, in that sense, was a very religious man. He was a guy who had understood that there was a Messiah called Jesus. And he was persuaded by the teaching of John the Baptist that everyone needed, that, that people around uh, in Jews, but also beyond the Jewish world, needed to repent. And they needed to serve the God of, uh, of Israel. But Apollos didn't know Jesus. He, he knew about Jesus, but he hadn't understood that I don't just need to be baptized for the repentance of my sin, for repentance from sin. He had, hadn't understood that he needed to be baptized into Jesus. He needed, his whole life needed to come into Jesus. Faith hadn't yet blossomed in his heart. The Holy Spirit hadn't awakened him to life as we were singing this morning. I ran out of that grave. Here I come. I'm alive. The Spirit has wakened me. I'm in a new place. The, my heart has changed. God has transformed me. This has not yet happened for Apollos. He's fervent. He loves God. He's full of the Scripture, but he hasn't encountered Jesus. And so uh, Aquila and Priscilla begin to explain uh, to him about Jesus. And, and this guy is humble enough to listen to them, though they're probably nowhere near as eloquent as he is. But the force of their experience, the force of what they've encountered in Jesus, he says, okay, I, I, I'm going to become born again. I'm going to give my life to Jesus Christ. And we see that he becomes saved and he goes on to be a huge help to the churches. He's discovered Christ. These folk have gently led him to Christ. They didn't confront him in the synagogue. They didn't, uh, you know, stand against him. They just said, hey, come and have food with us. Come and sit around our table. You know what? There's more than you have, and we want to explain it to you. There's something about this couple that they're deeply seated in the Scripture themselves, they're deeply seated in their relationship with Jesus. They're able to sit and, and, and see a guy and think, wow, we can help you. So we find dependable leaders coming through in this couple. It's interesting, actually, that Priscilla is mentioned here first. 
Um, this is not normally the way it is in writings from this time. Normally the husband would be mentioned first, and often Aquila is mentioned first, but particularly in this instance, Priscilla is mentioned first. It may well be that Priscilla was actually the more eloquent, that Priscilla was the more theologically minded of the couple. Whether that's true or not, uh, I think it's, there's a sense that we want to see people, male and female, growing in their gifting and uh, being able to lead in the things of God with others. They're able to discern truth rightly and, to, and understand how to lead people to Jesus. Now, maybe that you are here this morning and you would say, I, I think I'm actually a bit like Apollos. I'm committed. I've been in church all my life. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm somebody who's, uh, I'm for this. Uh, I might even argue uh, for the church or for the gospel. We don't find many people in that place in our culture now, but it may be that you're like this. But your heart has never come alive in Jesus. You've never experienced the power of the Holy Spirit. You might be here today or you might be listening on the stream this morning. And you would say, actually, I identify with him. We would love to talk with you. We'd love to lead you through the same process that Priscilla and Aquila led Apollos through, that you might come alive in Jesus, that you might be able to sing what we sang this morning. I ran out of that grave in the same way uh, as Apollos now could. Now, I want to say, it's all about the kingdom. It's all the kingdom. When Paul writes to this burgeoning church in Corinth, he writes from Ephesus. So what's happening now is that they've been in Ephesus for quite a long time. Things are pretty established already. Paul has been traveling. He's come back now to Ephesus. And while he's in Ephesus, he writes to the church in Corinth, what we have as, the, the, uh, as 1 Corinthians. He writes to the church in Corinth from Ephesus, and uh, of course, Priscilla and Aquila would have been known by the church in Ephesus because they were founding members of that church. So in the conclusion of his letter, he writes this in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 19. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. So here they are in Ephesus, and a church is now meeting in their home, which is presumably quite large. They were able to host a growing church, and we know that that church in Ephesus uh, ultimately became very large indeed. Um, and they were probably founding leaders in that church alongside Paul and others who got saved into it. He's left them in Ephesus. There's been wonderful fruitfulness. Paul is back with them, writing to the Corinthians and saying, hey, your brother and sister whom you love and who you remember, they are doing really well. Now, presumably, they're still making tents. Presumably, they're still very much uh, involved in business endeavors uh, in order to provide a big home that they could host a church in. I want to say this. The marketplace and the church both belong to Jesus. Your call might be primarily in the marketplace, your call might be primarily serving the church, but then you're serving people in the marketplace. Jesus owns both, and Jesus wants to reach the marketplace through the church, through his people, like Paul did with Priscilla and Aquila. 
And Jesus wants to resource the church with leadership and with faith and with finance and with gifting through the marketplace. Both are part of Jesus' plan. Jesus' intention is to send us into the marketplace that we might grow, that we might develop, that we might see the kingdom advance, and that we might also see success and growth and development in the endeavors that we put our hands to. I don't mean that as a guarantee of success. I just mean that God wants us to be faithful to Him in business and in the kingdom together. And we need to see that these things are linked and not separate. Question, did they have kids? Did they have kids? We don't know. Luke never says. Um, It's probably quite likely they did have kids. They just don't get mentioned here because we don't get a lot of time with them. But we do know this, that if they did have kids, their life did not center around their kids. They centered their lives around Jesus. They were willing and obedient to follow Jesus anywhere and everywhere he asked of them. And if they had kids, they took them along for the ride, for the journey. Now, I want to just make a personal comment here. Twice in our lives, we have moved, we've made the choice to follow Jesus to unknown circumstances. In particular, when we moved to Vancouver that created some real challenges that our children had to go through. But here's what we learned. When God calls us, He calls us as a family, not just as a mom and dad. So God's call to Vancouver was as much for Eden and Taylor as it was for Reese and Sarah. When we moved, the kids went through a very difficult first year, unexpected to us. In fact, at the end of that first year, we had to change what we were doing. Uh, Sarah stepped out of uh, really working in the church plant with me, and we, we pulled the kids out of school, and we homeschooled them for 18 months, which was never in our intention. It really wasn't in our wheelhouse either, but it was something we needed to do in order to help our kids through the transition. I don't mean that when we follow God, we stop being responsible. We must be responsible for our kids. They're our first priority. But we don't center our lives around our kids. We center our lives around Jesus and his mission. And we go after that, all guns blazing. Jesus wants to catch our kids up in mission. And when they see their parents going for it, they will catch it themselves. You know... We don't sacrifice our kids on the altar of ministry. But neither do we shy away from faith-fueled obedience in order to protect our kids. As Jesus-loving parents, it is imperative that we catch our kids up in the adventure of the gospel. You see, our kids will learn and they will emulate what they see in us. They will learn and emulate what we truly love, not what we say we love. Okay? They'll see it. They'll recognize it. They'll do what they see us do. And so if as parents we don't prioritize God's presence and God's people, maybe we prioritize leisure over those things. 
Maybe we prioritize earnings over those things. Maybe we prioritize lifestyle over those things. If we prioritize those things, even if we read our kids Bible stories and teach them about Jesus, what we will produce in our kids will be people who know about Jesus, but who love and serve the things that we've taught them to love and serve. That's how it works, friends. So if we as parents are ultimately invested in our homes, our activities, our toys, rather than in God's kingdom, we will find our kids emulating us in that. Your kids are your first set of disciples. Take them on the faith journey. Teach them what it means to live by faith. Go on God's mission and you will see them. There'll be challenges. And I would say that the challenges that our kids have faced have borne resilience in them. Rather than these things taking them out, we are seeing them growing in their own faith relationship and taking steps in Jesus because they went on a journey of faith. I want to encourage us, church. Let's see that our kids are immersed in faith and adventure rather than held back because we're fearful. We devote ourselves to God's presence. We give ourselves to God's people. We press ourselves into God's mission. In the marketplace, in the cities, in the nations, wherever God calls us to, let's take them on that journey with us. Finally, joyful partnership. Romans 16 verse 3. Guess what? Priscilla and Aquila are back in Rome. Paul's writing to the church in Rome, and as he finishes, he writes a whole bunch of greetings, and he says, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. They've got another church. They've got another church meeting in their house. What are these guys made of? It's amazing. They're back in Rome. There's a church meeting in their house. There's gospel fruitfulness in their lives. Presumably, they're still making tents. Maybe they've stopped making tents. Their other business endeavors are uh, providing for, for what they're doing now. Who knows? But what we know is they're still actively on mission. They're still caught up in the purposes of God. How does Paul speak about them? Fellow workers, fellow workers, fellow workers. You know, in our modern church context, we often hear people talking about clergy and laity, or those employed by the church and those served by those employed by the church. Paul does not see any clergy-laity divide. The Bible knows nothing of a clergy-laity divide. Sometimes you hear people talking about full-timers and non-full-timers. Friends, when you are baptized into Jesus, you step into full-time ministry. Every single one of us, if you are in Christ, you're in full-time ministry. It may be that most of your full-time ministry is spent in, the business, in, in, in your business, in a hospital, in the marketplace, in, in your family as a, as, a, as a mom or looking after kids. Wherever it is that you are exercising your ministry, you are in full-time ministry and you are a fellow worker. That's what we all are. Every single one of us, fellow workers together. 
There is, this is another aspect of modern church that needs desperately to be restored. We've got to come to think differently about this. Otherwise, the mission will stop. No, we've got to think we're all together in this. What's God calling each and every one of us to do? Because as we do what God's calling us to do, we will see advance after advance after advance after advance. It's what God's calling us into. God's called every single person in this room into His glorious purposes. You may not even know it yet. You might be one of those Apollos, and you're sitting here thinking, God has purpose for my life. Yes, He does. Yes, He does. He wants to catch you up in something that's bigger than you. Courageous. They risked their lives for me. They risked their necks for me. They're a courageous couple. Lindsay this morning said, I feel like God's calling us to get out the boat. Is that you? Do you feel like God's calling you to get out the boat? It takes some courage, doesn't it, to step out of a boat, you know, physics. I can stand on this thing. This, you know, water, have you ever tried to stand on it? Yeah, I know. It doesn't work. I can stand on this thing. Stepping into this, this takes courage. God is after a courageous people. God is calling a people who are willing to risk because we trust Him. Not take stupid, foolish risks, although sometimes what we do when we're trusting God looks foolish to others. But God is asking us to see clearly, to get our eyes focused on Him. He's saying, come, come. So I'm going to step out of the boat. I'm going to be courageous I'm going to step into what God has for us. For many of us this morning, you might see something. I, I, in one sense, I want to set for us today a 20, 30, 40 year vision. We've talked much about the promises that God has given us about planting churches and seeing the kingdom going out. There are people in this room, and God's put his hand on your life, and he's saying, I'm, You're going to go. For others, He's saying, you're going to become a pillar here, weight-bearing. The roof is going to rest on you. The, the, the sense is that you will carry responsibility and grace in God for what he's building. Church, let's be courageous. Let's be like Priscilla and Aquila. Let's step into the purposes of God with faith. Let's see the promises that he's called us into accomplished Maybe, maybe it'll happen in our lifetime that we will see churches planted all over this province and beyond. Maybe, maybe it'll be that we will be together over years to come. Future thirsts. How's it going in such and such? How's it going in such and such? What's happening over there? We love and are supporting you as you go. It's what God has for us. Why don't you stand? Why don't we stand?